entering the Freedom Hut. Trump puts out his opening up America again plan, but Democrats are setting a trap for him. We'll give you the details on that. Plus, the lockdown is loosening as people are refusing to comply in more and more places. Tell you about the aircraft carrier experiment that we're seeing underway. China underestimates deaths by at least 50 percent. Reed versus Ford, Biden gets sleepy again, and should you dress up for work from home? Coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Uh, this is this is not campaigning. I want to make the country better. I don't care about campaigning. This is uh, this is about making our country better. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. This is about making the country better. This show is the Trump administration's plan to reopen America is. But that doesn't mean that everybody agrees. Doesn't mean everybody will uh, come along on that ride. There are people who have other ideas, other objections, uh, other plans in mind. We'll get through some of those today. But the, the big news yesterday evening, uh, when many of you were probably listening to this show, perhaps, uh, was the drop of the, of the phases, the three phases for re or well, opening up America again. A little bit of a play on make America great again there, I think, or at least hearkening back to that language. So we, we have the, the guidelines. They are they are out like I said, it, it steps, uh, it goes in phases. It, look, it's exactly what you would expect. Um, they have proposed criteria, symptoms, cases, hospitals, and you have to satisfy the criteria uh, before you go to a phased opening. And it's downward trajectory of influenza-like illnesses for a 14-day period and downward trajectory of COVID-like uh, syndromic cases in a 14-day period. Downward trajectory of documented cases, treat, treat all patients without crisis care and robust testing in place for healthcare workers. So a lot of places are going to have already really have that. And so they can go into phase one and other places. I mean, New York is going to be a bit delayed, but other places are going to have to take a bit more time to get there. I, I think everything in this plan that was unveiled is sensible. I think it's fair minded. I think it's serious. I have no objection to it. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect and there's clearly going to be some stop start with all of this, but we'll have to see how quickly different states implement it. Um, And it goes into the state's responsibilities for this. It has guidelines for employers, goes into phase one, and here's and I'm just trying to give you the, the overview of this, because then we're going to talk about the objections to it, what the latest data tells us about what we've been told about this disease and the uh, the balancing of risk that's going to have to happen. That we, we are now finally accepting as a society what I've known for weeks, but I've been less vocal about certainly on Twitter because I don't need the lib piranhas to come after me unnecessarily. Uh, we're going to have to find a way to push through this and live through this. There is no stay in the bunker until everything is fine and there's no risk from this disease. That's not in our future. That's not even possible because of the risks we would run to the economy and the, the damage that we would do to ourselves 
if we tried that approach. And for a lot of you in parts of the country that have very minimal cases of this so far, that does seem completely insane. And, and it's understandable that would seem, seem crazy to you. Why would your state shut down with these extreme measures when the numbers simply do not justify it? And even in the worst hit places in the country, New York, Detroit, uh, uh, New Orleans, uh, New Jersey, northern New Jersey, even in those areas, the numbers haven't been as bad as what were projected even a few weeks ago. So the good news is we're in a better place than we had anticipated. The bad news is this is going to go on. When I say this, I mean, our fight against the virus is going to go on a lot longer than a lot of people, I think, currently realize. We have to establish a path forward, which is what these guidelines are trying to do, a path forward that allows us to take sensible precaution, mitigate risk, but also live more of our lives. Stay home and hide under the bed is not a long-term solution for anything. We all know that. So here's phase one. Vulnerable individuals continue to shelter in place. When in public, people should maximize physical distance, limit social settings to uh, less than 10 people, avoid socializing of groups of more than 10 people. Yeah, minimize non-essential travel. And then for employers, encourage telework, close common areas, minimize non-essential travel, strongly consider special accommodations who are vulnerable population. Remember, vulnerable population is the focus of all of this. We're going to have to come up with even more robust measures to protect uh, nursing homes, to protect uh, retirement communities, to make sure that anybody who is older, even within a family, if they're living in a, in a multi-generational household, are able to be protected, that they, uh, you know, that there's going to be a lot. And there's also going to have to be a lot of work from us as a society to make sure that folks who are continuing uh, to do a greater degree of precaution for a longer period of time, don't feel uh, even more isolated, don't feel like, well, now people are forgetting about what they're going through. So we have to make sure that we're constantly supporting neighbors, friends, loved ones, family members who are in that vulnerable population, getting them food, getting them the medicine they need, and, and making them feel as included in this process of beating the virus as possible because they will be carrying a heavy burden by being shut down or in lockdown the longest based on these guidelines. Uh, so for employers, pretty straightforward. I told you phase two, remember if you go 14 days without a spike in cases and 14 days, um, 14 days seems to be the, this is the benchmark we're using for everything right now. Uh, phase two, vulnerable individuals still shelter in place in public, maximize physical distance. Don't group with more than 50 people. Non-essential travel can resume. Phase two, employers continue to encourage telework, close common areas. Non-essential travel can resume special accommodations. Uh, schools and organized activities can reopen. Still no visits to senior care facilities. No visits to hospitals. Large venues can operate under moderate physical distancing protocols. Elective surgeries can resume. Gyms can remain open if they adhere to physical distancing and sanitation protocols. Bars may operate with diminished standing room occupancy where applicable. So phase two starts to get a lot closer 
Remember, we're trying to get into phase one in the next month in most places. Maybe some will start in the next couple of weeks, but it'll be really about three, four weeks. You'll see phase one operations in more and more states across the country. And we got to see how that goes. Then we're going to get to phase two. And then phase three, vulnerable individuals can resume public interactions, but should still practice some physical distancing. Low risk populations should minimize time in crowded environments. Work sites go back to unrestricted staffing. You can start to have senior care facilities and hospitals getting visits. Large venues operate under physical distancing standards. Gyms open if they have sanitation protocols in place. Bars with uh, limited standing room capacity. There you have it, friends. That's it. That's a roadmap. That's a plan. Now, Now we have something to work with. Now we have something to work off of. We have benchmarks in place. We have a way to look at our future and make decisions that are not, oh, my gosh, we're all going to die, or oh, my gosh, we're just going to stay in lockdown and the economy is going to explode, and that's okay because we're all going to die otherwise. No, that will not be the approach. That's not how the American people are going to view this, and I think we're making some real, some real progress. Um, this is when we are finally starting to, as, as a society, I think, come to grips with the trade-offs that are inherent in dealing with a situation like this. Everyone got very scared. And there was a panic a couple of weeks ago, really three, four weeks ago, where the, even talk of trade-offs was elevated to like discussion of murder. How could you? Blood on your hands. Don't you care about the vulnerable? Don't you care about the sick? Yeah, we care about everybody. We're trying to make the best decisions that we can under the circumstances. And so that's why I think it's, it's important that we take this moment to recognize that we're in a position now where there's the opening to have a real adult conversation about how the future goes. And the administration is pushing us all in that direction. Now, it is still going to be open to the states. I'm hearing and seeing some analysis out there, people saying, well, the president can force under the interstate commerce clause. That's not going to happen. And also, I don't think as conservatives, we should embrace the usage of the interstate commerce clause to try to twist the arms of state governments. You know, where we're usually the Wickard v. Filburn was overreach and bad and led to terrible uh, federal government leviathan growth, right? That's usually what we're as conservatives. Uh, so we, we shouldn't go in the other direction now and say, no, no, the president should be uh, unduly twisting arms of states of governors to make them go faster. Here's what's going to twist the arms of governors to go faster. Some states will go through these guidelines and will move relatively quickly. They'll move expeditiously to get as reopened as they can, as safely as they can and start to see the benefits for their economy and also from the people. People are going to start non-complying by the millions. We're already seeing this. Not just that protest in Michigan, in, uh, in Lansing, but also you're just look at photos that are circulating of, of major roadways in the Los Angeles area full of cars. People are saying, no, I'm sorry, we're going to start moving around and start doing stuff again. So better to put everybody on a on a uh, framework or within a framework where they can make decisions and understand, all right, look, if we have a setback, if we have a setback, we know what to do. We have a game plan. This is how you deal with an evolving enemy. This is how you deal with a dynamic challenge, which is what the fight against this virus is. Now, this is where the politics are going to come in. Of course. The way the Democrats are setting this up with it, Nancy Pelosi and others are talking about this. Anything that happens that's bad after May 1st 
will be somehow blamed on Donald Trump. There'll be blood on his hands. It'll be as though he ordered mass executions of people, even though the other recognition that has finally seeped into people's minds is flattening the curve doesn't mean the virus goes away. In fact, there are some, and they're not very popular with this analysis, but there are some who say that we, we may end up suffering over the next six to nine months the same total number of infections in nine months that we might have suffered in, say, three or four months as a nation, and that most people in the country will actually end up getting this or being exposed to it, I should say, at some point. So flattening the curve doesn't mean, okay, it's gone. It means we get it to a point where we think it's manageable. Manageable means there still will be cases. If there are cases, there will be hospitalizations, and there will be a percentage of hospitalizations that result in people dying. And it's terrible and it's tragic, but this is the world that we're living in. There is no other world. There is no way around this. So that's what forces the real discussion about what are sensible and fair trade-offs, what's real mis- uh, risk mitigation or misc mitigation. Whoops. Risk mitigation, what does it look like? How do we do it? And now we have, now we have that uh, framework in place to make the right decisions, I think. And it will be done state by state. Now, Pelosi and the rest are going to blame Trump no matter what. But we can't stop that from let, from bringing us to start reopening parts of the economy. And we'll also be testing out the theory that lockdowns were that, that the the extreme lockdown we went into across the country where 90 percent of people plus effectively stayed in their homes with the exception of just getting food, that that extreme lockdown. We'll see if that really had the massive uh, suppressive effect or if a less extreme lockdown would have also been able to suppress the virus without anywhere near the economic damage. And this is important. And it's not just a political issue. It's important to understand what's true because we may face this again. There may be a major second wave of this virus at some point. So we should know what tools that have been used were effective and what tools were either overhyped or pushed for political reasons. And look across Europe, the major lockdowns didn't end up with better outcomes. The major lockdown countries have not had better outcomes in general than the minimal lockdown country of Sweden. Pretty much the only one that's done that. But that's the, the, the uh, results speak for themselves thus far. And I would like someone to start looking at, well, why is that? Why, why did we have to go into lockdown? If the, if the story we're going to be told is that the spread had already, it had already happened, I'd want to know how... Well, at, at what point does that spread stop then? You know, when, when can we assume that this will actually be a problem that won't just have a, a massive resurgence? So anyway, we, we, we've got what has to happen now, but the devil's always in the details, as you know. Reopening will be fraught with risk. There is risk built into it. There is no perfect future. There's no great idea here that gets us out of all of this. But now, finally, I think we have a return to sober adult conversation about what this nation and what each state needs to do. And the president deserves credit for doing for for pushing this forward when politically the safer thing to do would be to say, I don't even you know, I don't even know. Let's just let the governors figure it out. We'll help them as we can. But I want to leave this to each individual state and see what ends up happening. I mean, here's here's a prediction. Texas. Governor uh, Governor Abbott is going to reopen for business relatively quickly. This is what I think will happen. We'll, we'll reopen soon, matter of a couple of weeks. Not all business, but a, a substantial portion. 
and Texas will go on and Texas will be fine. So that will be a big signal, won't it? This will show us that it is possible to continue to live life in a greater sense, in a, you know, more of life, even while this virus is out there. That in and of itself is is uh, going to be a that's going to be a hopeful moment when we ha- when we all start to see that happen. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The New York pause policies, the close down policies will be extended in coordination with other states to May 15th. Uh, I don't want to project beyond that period. That's about one month. One month is a long time. Uh, People need certainty and clarity so they can plan. I need a coordinated action plan with the other states. So one month will continue to close down policies. What happens after then? I don't know. Now, this was frustrating. I'm here in New York and it feels like the extension of this at this point for another month. Um, look, it's these are all tough calls. I, I think that we do need to get used to not you got to become comfortable with the discomfort of not having all the answers on this stuff. I know there are people out there, whether they're on radio shows or whatever, oh, they've always got the answer. Nobody has all the answers on this stuff. I was just talking to an infectious disease specialist this morning. He's saying, I I keep sending him this this data about that's coming out about remdesivir and about uh, hydroxychloroquine and now the serology testing that's come out of Stanford University. And he keeps trying to tell me, and we keep going through this game. He goes, look, it's it's encouraging. Here Here are the following issues with the data. Here's why we can't be excited about it yet. And and each time I have this moment of, ah, come on. It feels like progress is so hard to come by with these therapeutics. And so that's why I I look, Governor Cuomo, on normal times, I think the guy's a, a Democrat machine politician and a buffoon. He has been bad on the preparation in New York, no question. Been a little better on the handling, and although there has been some hyperbole and some He's been off on some things, but I try to remind myself there are no great answers. There aren't even really good answers. There's just the least bad answer. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, team, as promised, Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio joins us now to talk about everything we'll, we need to ask the man. Hey, Congressman, thanks so much. You bet. Good to be with you, Bob. All right. So let's start. I, I want to get into FISA, FISA reform, mm-hmm. ODNI, all that stuff. But sure. first, uh, the, the reopening state by state, the president's put out the guidance as of yesterday. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think about this nationwide? And then drill down on, on how it affects your home state of Ohio. No, I, I think it's great. You know, remember, the president said like three and a half weeks ago, uh, the, the cure can't be worse than the disease. The cure can't be worse than the problem. So this is a serious problem. We all understand that. And we got to we got to we got to deal with it. But we also got to get our economy up and running. And I think the president is right laying out these this three phase. Uh, but let's let's get people back to work. And, and you see this particularly you've seen a number of demonstrations across the Midwest where, where people are saying, wait a minute, let's let's enough of this attack on freedom, enough of this uh, staying closed down. Let's get back to work and let's do it sooner rather than later. So I am all for it. Um, the guidelines I think they laid out uh, and the sort of the phased in uh, approach to it all, I think, make uh, make 
just good common sense, and I think that's what the American people see as well. What are your expectations for uh, Ohio in this process? Well, our governor tweeted out yesterday, which is I thought was a great sign that uh, he he plans on sticking to the May first, and and but people going back to work on on May first. Now, no details. And as the president said yesterday in his press conference, uh, he hopes that some of this can happen even before May 1st, uh, which is sort of the date that he had, you know, the, the White House had said as well. So uh, that's my attitude. Look, let's let's go ASAP. And frankly, one of the things I think would be really helpful is for Congress to set the example. Why in the world aren't we in session? You know, we got all these task forces working in the White House and several there and around the country. But the task force that's supposed to address big issues that confront our nation is the United States Congress, and we've been missing in action. So, uh, Speaker Pelosi, where's your plan? Where you know you said, well, we think we're going to come back on May fourth. Well, others are working right now. Truckers are trucking produce and, and and goods and services and supplies. Grocery store people are stacking shelves and frontline workers in the healthcare system and our law enforcement. They're all working. Why can't the U.S. Congress get back to work and 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 deal with some of the issues that are that are critical to this this virus uh, concern and other business that we should be taking care of? And the delay that happened once before from the Democrat side on getting the Paycheck Protection Program up and running. Mm-hmm. We're, we're now facing mm-hmm. an, an, another delay. Uh, I've heard Democrats say they need more data. Well, we know they're running out of money. Is there an argument here that that is even good faith or is this just cynical politics, Congressman? No, it's politics and everyone knows it. You know, this is the same group of people who wanted the Green New Deal and the CARES Act. This is the same group of people who got money for the Kennedy Center and the CARES Act. This is the same group of people. Jerry Nadler introduced a bill a couple of weeks ago which said we should pay states to let criminals out during the coronavirus. Think about that. We're going to pay people to let the bad guys go? That might be one of the dumbest ideas I have ever heard, but they're saying, oh, the coronavirus requires us to do this, and uh, we think this is necessary, and so let's pay states for this, use American taxpayer dollars to say, okay, we're going to let more bad guys out of prison. So we know what this is. Let's just fund the Paycheck Protection Program, which is a program that was necessary because government told businesses you can't operate your business. And we have to help small business owners and families get through this. It's almost like a takings. When you take people's property or livelihood, you've got to compensate them for it. So governments did that. So let's get this program, uh, the funds it needs, to help the small business owners and families across this country and not play politics. All right, switching gears here for a moment to a story that under more normal circumstances – would have, I think, been been mind-blowing for a lot of folks or perhaps expected, but still upsetting. And that's the most recent information that we have from the declassified footnotes of the Inspector General Horowitz report. Now we actually yeah. see more of what was in that report. And it turns out that there, uh, there are some areas where the, where the FBI has even less wiggle room to make this seem like anything other than a political attack, the whole Russia collusion investigation, the origins of this, the beginnings of Crossfire Hurricane, uh, Congressman, you've been following this all along yeah. and you've been fighting to try to get more truth mm-hmm. and transparency in this process. Is there going to be accountability at the FBI and in the intelligence community for those who were clearly well, abusing so. authority? Yeah, let's hope so. You're right. They, they clearly were. I mean, for a number of us who've been on this issue for, for several years now, the, the only thing we had wrong is it was worse than we thought. Because now we know that the, the, the FBI got played by Christopher Steele. The Russians were giving Christopher Steele disinformation. And worse yet, the FBI knew it was taking place, but they didn't care. They didn't care because they were so determined to get this president that they launched an investigation on this president before he was even president, went and spied on two American citizens associated with the president's campaign, and have been after the president ever since then. So um, th- th- this is as bad as it gets. And remember, it was about one year ago this month 
maybe maybe 13 months ago. Bill Barr, new attorney general at the time, testified in front of Congress. And he said there was a failure of leadership at the upper echelon of the FBI. But it was worse than that. It wasn't just that Comey, McKay, Baker, Strzok, Page, the people who ran the Clinton investigation and then, then, then ran the Trump-Russia crossfire hurricane investigation. It wasn't just that there was a failure of leadership. There was a blatant and intentional disregard for the truth. They knew that the Russians were playing steel. They knew steel was getting played. They knew the dossier was BS, but they didn't care because they wanted to get this president. And that's how bad this was. What are you still trying to find out in all of this? I mean, I had Congressman Nunes on recently, and, and he, he alluded to there being a big next act coming here. We know that the Durham investigation is still ongoing. The U.S. attorney from Connecticut yeah. and Attorney General Barr are all over this. And Barr's comments recently show that, that he, he, already smells, he already smells a rat in this whole process, but he's just not telling yeah. us the details. What are you looking to still find out? What do we have to know before we finally come to the end of this? Well, I, th I think two things. One is, you're right, uh, let's see what Mr. Durham turns up, and I hope that there are going to be people held accountable um, and, and, and maybe even in, in indictments. But the second thing is, never forget what Horowitz told us a week and a half ago. He said it was more than just the Carter Page FISA that there were problems with. Horowitz is doing a broader look. The Inspector General of the Justice Department is doing a broader look at all the FISA uh, process, the entire FISA process. He did a random sample of 29 uh, FISA applications, 29 American citizens who were being spied on, and he found in every single every single one there were major problems, particularly what they call the Woods file, the file that is underlying evidence to support what is taken to the FISA court. He found in 29 that there were problems file and in four of the 29 applications they couldn't even find a woods file they didn't even have it which is a standard the fbi has for itself so the fbi didn't follow their own standard knew they weren't following their own standard and did nothing to correct the fact that they weren't following the standard that they had set that's how bad this is so there's the durham investigation there's this overall fisa concern that is all what we should be having hearings on but we're not back in congress to even do what we're supposed to be doing when do you think you're gonna go when do you think you're gonna be back I want to go back like ASAP. Uh, Pelosi has said May 4th, which is ridiculous. People are working, like as we said earlier, uh, and more people are going to go back to work before that date, but somehow Congress isn't. That is, is completely ridiculous. So uh, I hope we go back uh, next week or the week after and start doing the work of the American people. And what's, what's your biggest focus going to be once you're back? Obviously, again, we'll make sure that we get the PPP extended with more yeah. funding for yeah. that. But what, what else do you want to see happen? Two things would happen. I'm on the Judiciary Committee, and uh, I'm a ranking member of the Judiciary Committee and, and still serving as ranking member of the, the Oversight Committee. So on oversight, we should be looking at the World Health Organization. What better thing to have oversight of now than the organization that lied to the world, specifically lied to the American people, and we're the biggest funders of that organization? So we should be doing oversight hearings on the World Health Organization, how bad things really are at that, that institution. Then in the Judiciary Committee, we should be looking at the threats to liberty. Bill Barr did a great memo two days, three days ago where he indicated that, you know, if, if you can go to the grocery store and maintain six foot social distancing and, and, and take care of your shopping there, you should certainly be able to go to church on Sunday and not have people harass you if you're going to maintain the same kind of distance standards there. That is that was a great win for religious liberty, that, that memo he put out. So we should be having hearings in the committee most responsible for protecting your fundamental liberties. That committee, the House Judiciary Committee, should be having hearings on what's happening around the country where these governors and, and local local officials are restricting people's fundamental rights and just just one more for you congressman if in fact as you said you're on judiciary if there is really clear evidence of of criminal abuse that comes up going back to the, the fisa situation for a moment uh, are you confident that people will be prosecuted 
I, I do. If they, if they can prove it and it's there, if the evidence and, and, and supporting evidence is there, I think you will see Bill Barr and, and John Durham do that. Uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But one other thing that should happen when we go back, the fact that Jerry Nadler has not had uh, Michael Horowitz, the inspector general of the Justice Department, come in and, and do a hearing in front of the Judiciary Committee on what took place at the FISA court is ridiculous. We already have December. He issued his report on Carter Page. We've yet to have a hearing on where, where Mr. Horowitz can come in and answer our questions and, and, and be there so the American people can see it. And now with the memo he put out a week and a half ago, more reason for him to come in for a hearing. So that's the other thing we should be doing in Judiciary Committee as well. All right, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, everybody. Congressman, really appreciate you making the time. Stay safe, and thanks for your work. You too. You too, Buck. Thank you. Take care. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. As these new and better testing solutions come online, we're seeing this additional capacity reflected in the numbers. For this reason, the number of tests processed in commercial laboratories has dropped from approximately 100,000 to roughly 75,000 tests over the last week. The reason it dropped is because we have so many other tests and we don't even have to go through the laboratories. But the laboratories have tremendous additional capacity and states feel free to use that capacity. Some in the media falsely reported this as a bad thing, when in fact it is a great thing, because it indicates that the states are moving to faster, more local testing solutions, including on-the-spot tests. Testing, testing, testing. We've been told all along that's very, very important. I think it's easy to say how important that is uh, without really getting into the you know, the the situation of what kind of testing for what, how fast, where there's there's a lot of additional information you need. Yes, we need to be able to test clearly for the virus. We also need serology tests. But how effective are they and how quickly are we getting them up and where will they be available? And are you subjecting people to the possibility of covid-19 infection, um, covid-19 infection from showing up at a testing site? Right. That's another big issue. That's been a big problem in hospitals. This is where you have, in part, I think, the concerns over nosocomial infection, which we talk about here on the show, hospital based infection spread. If you have everyone showing up to an ER who thinks they have COVID-19 in a certain area, guess what? If you show up and you don't have it, well, now you're in the ER full of people with COVID-19. It's very bad. So that's why they've tried to set up these drive through testing sites and all the rest of it on the serology testing which I think is a very big, important piece of this for a couple of reasons, right? There's all, remember, serology test looks for antibodies. Antibodies tell you if you've already been uh, subjected to, or if you've already been uh, exposed to the virus at some level. So looking at the serology testing uh, would give us some sense, first and foremost, about what the mortality rate of this really is. And that's where we, we and I, I want to talk to you also about this aircraft carrier because now we have it's a little bit like the princess cruise vessel, which is a contained environment where we saw you introduce this virus into a contained environment that's very susceptible for the spread of this. What you know, what are we what are you facing? How bad does it get? What are the numbers? Now, the princess cruise line, you're dealing with a particularly older and less healthy than the general population group. Um, but with 
clearly with the aircraft carrier dealing with a healthier and younger than the general population uh, group. And so we have some numbers on that that I will get to. But on the on the antibody testing side, big study just came out. Um, Stanford University, I believe, did this one in Santa Clara County, California. They sampled thirty three hundred people. And it turns out that according to the serology test that they have, the number of actual cases versus the number of believed cases based on the serology test, if you extrapolate it out, 50 to 80 times more people uh, have been exposed to and gotten an immune response from COVID-19 than the actual listed cases. That's enormous. Now, that doesn't get us to perfect herd immunity and everything. And people use herd immunity a little loosely these days. Herd immunity at its at its uh, apex, at its best, would be 90 plus percent of the population already has had this and has lasting immunity. And therefore, the spread of this, because it would be so limited, only one in 10 people who would come into contact with uh, with somebody uh, would be susceptible to this. It would just not it's like the virus runs out of a room to run. Right. We're nowhere near that. We're not going to be anywhere near that, I think, anytime soon. But even if we are at, say, let's let's say 10 to 20 percent of the population, uh, certainly the population of densely, you know, densely populated. Sorry, some of these words keep coming up. Densely populated parts of the country. Well, that would then mean that you have, let's say, a fifth of people in New York, Los Angeles, who if they were tested would find out that at least for the next year, they keep saying maybe the, immu- the immunity is limited duration, fine. At least for the next year, though, which would be a big deal, right? Because we might have a vaccine in a year, give or take, and better therapeutics. You wouldn't have to worry. So you'd be able to go out, do work, do what you got to do. And this is where we get into the, the, you know, the serology uh, identity card or whatever they're going to call it. You know, sort of passport to COVID-19 immunity, uh, which I know people are pushing back on on very understandably. But it just this this is where these ideas come from. So this is, in a sense, encouraging. We want the number of exposed up to this point that we don't know about and that were asymptomatic or had very low symptoms and didn't realize what they had. We want that number to be as high as possible. If we could if we could find out that 20 to 30 percent of America already has antibodies to this disease, that would be great news. Great news. Not okay. we're out of the woods news, but it would really be helpful. We find out that, you know, two to three percent of the population uh, has been exposed to this or two to three percent even in the areas with the worst, you know, uh, worst virus exposure so far then that's that's bad news. Then then that means that we got the climb up through the slow rise to herd immunity is going to be really slow and really brutal and really painful for our society. All right. I also got to tell you something. A friend of mine who's a really an infectious disease wizard. He's a he's an epidemiologist of over 30 years is what he does. Uh, he he reached out to me because I sent this to him, the study, and he says, yes, but it's good. It's encouraging the Santa Clara study. Downside is that the serology tests right now may be picking up a lot of other coronaviruses as as false positives here in terms of the antibodies, because guess what the common cold is? A coronavirus, a type of coronavirus. How many cold viruses are out there? Hundreds. So that's I look, I, I'm give, I got to bring you all the facts as I know them on all the all the indicators. That's the 
more, you know, that's the, oh, this is not the good news that we're hoping for necessarily, but it could still be very promising. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. What they want is people want to keep this going, and we're doing it to keep the small businesses open and to keep the workers paid. And we have a $250 billion request. The Democrats like it. The Republicans love it. And to be honest, I think it's going to something's going to be happening. I hope so, because it's a very popular program. It was really executed flawlessly. Uh, the first day they changed an application a little bit. There was a, but when you look at what Bank of America did and what Wells Fargo did and Citi and a lot of the banks. But when you ask, when you look at what all of the community banks did, it's been really incredible. Well, we're negotiating with Democrats, and uh, they should, frankly, approve it quickly. This is a great thing for our country. It's a great thing for small business and for the workers, and we're having a hard time getting them to approve it. I think it's going to happen. It should happen really unanimously, uh, but they're trying to get things, and we're not too happy with what they're trying to get. Trying to get things. That's what the Democrats are doing. We all know what that means, right? That they're allowing the pain of the American people, the small businesses that are going under right now, and the workers who don't have a paycheck. And they're, they're using all of that as, as one big hostage, telling the Republicans, give us what we want or else. And they're supposed to be the party of concern for everyday folks. They're supposed to be the party of concern for the little guy and gal. Hmm. And yet still, here we have this delay. In fact, Pelosi doesn't seem like she's even willing to call Congress from its extended vacation to deal with this issue. What the heck is going on here? Isn't this one of the more important parts of our government response? Remember, the, the shutdowns are effectively on all of us to execute. Right? The shutdowns are on us to do. We do the social distancing. We take the precautions. And the other side of that is the government has an obligation because we are we are doing with that shutdown what we have been told, what we've been mandated to do by the government. They then take on the responsibility of making sure that there's cash in our pockets to pay us for this and that we'll be able to go forward and be okay, Right. So what's the problem, Nancy Pelosi? There's an obligation here, a particular obligation, a clear one that has been created by the government, and there's not enough money as of right now to fund that obligation. Well, I, I suppose, because I always like to be fair, we, we should hear from, from Nancy Pelosi on this one. We should hear from her on why there has been this, why there still is, as I speak to you now, there still is delay from Democrats. This is the second time they've played this game, too. Media, of course, covers for them changes headlines around, shifts around the words, makes it seem like this is a gridlock. It's not a gridlock. One side wants to get money to the American people who need it. The other side wants to stop that from happening until they get additional stuff that has nothing to do with getting money to the American people. That is just the, that is just the truth of what is happening right now. So I guess we should hear, she's, she'll step away from her, you know, $20,000 double refrigerators uh, and her $15 a pint artisan ice cream. That was an amazing let them eat cake moment from Nancy Pelosi. Let them eat 
super fancy Earl Grey flavored ice cream. Now, I'm just going to call out myself and say it. I actually really like Earl Grey flavored ice cream. So maybe I like artisan ice cream, too. But uh, you, you, most of you listening have a fancier refrigerator than I do. I can tell you that. Probably, I'd say, almost all of you. Not a fancy fridge here. Uh, here's what Pelosi says about why there's the slowdown. Play five. Again, we don't have any disagreement about wanting to help small businesses. Uh, they would like to say that, but they know that isn't true because we helped shape this program to begin with and are big believers. Wait, but what's the problem then, Nancy? If there's no disagreement about helping, you like the program and the money is necessary for the program to help, you know, can't we just all put the pieces on the puzzle together and come to the obvious conclusion here? The obvious conclusion. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be a great thing for us to be able to say, ah, yes, indeed. Nancy Pelosi, what do you really do? What would you say you do here, Nancy, or you are doing? Uh, I, I heard that was from a conference call that the Democratic caucus put together. And, and Pelosi also went on to kind of <laughs> do her usual you know, muttering about nothing. Uh, say that the problem is that she wants us to that she wants the government rather she wants the the program to include more money for for states and localities. So this this is going to be a grab bag of cash for all of the different organs of the government because the expansion of the government during a crisis is ideologically in line with what Democrats want without even looking at the specifics about a program or funding needs or anything else. Just just send more cash to the government. Because remember, this is your money. This is your money that you are being given. This is your cash you're being given. But they wanted to go into the government's hands instead of just giving it into the hands of the people who are the ones who make the money in the first place. Right? The government prints money. The productivity behind it that gives those pieces of paper or those digits on a screen value, the productivity, the labor, the, uh, the worth of all of it comes from you. This this only is possible. The only reason that that pieces of paper printed with a bunch of fancy ink and some images on them is something that has so much meaning in our society is because of the work that you are doing. The government just printing this stuff. This is what this is the switch that the Democrats don't understand. This is what the left refuses to believe that that the money is money is not something that the government just hoards and has because it does and can spend as much of it as it wants and none of it matters and it's all just politics and the fat cats keeping it for themselves. No, the the productivity and the economic activity below the stuff that actually creates value, you know, the reason this is a medium of exchange, they, they just reject all of that. And they want to make sure that more and more money goes into government hands so they can make more decisions about your life than they already are. And make no mistake about it, they are planning on continuing to use this moment in time as a means of expanding the scope, size, power of government in every way that they can. We've been seeing this all along. Lindsey Graham, for example, was asked about how, you know, is the GOP embracing socialism? Here is Lindsey Graham's answer, plain nine. There's a time for big government. Uh, Big government help us 
helped us get through World War II. That's when we had the Defense Production Act back then. Instead of making cars, we're making tanks and planes. There's definitely a time for the government, and we need to work on our broken unemployment systems at the state level. There's an all-hands-on-deck uh, approach at the Department of Labor. But what is the most sustainable way to keep the economy strong? It's not perpetual big government. It's relying on the private sector in partnership with the government. So I, I, I'm okay with uh, helping people who have just been devastated get back on their feet. But I don't want to have a health care system uh, where the federal government decides who gets what when. I want the private sector involved in health care. And finally, you're going to see a breakthrough in the vaccine, not come from the federal government, but from the private sector. Don't destroy the goose that laid the golden egg when it comes to medical technology. All the people talking about how, oh, look, everyone wants big government now. Yeah, if we got invaded by a foreign power, we would also want big government then in the sense that it would be a national military response against a foreign enemy. This is very similar in the in the extreme uh, in the ex- ex- extremes of the situation to that. So, of, of course, under those circumstances, you're going to want a, a large and robust government response. But this does not change the philosophical underpinnings that conservatives have. And in fact, what we see is that the first opportunity, I mean, if we really look at the scorecard of what the government's doing, let's talk about that for a moment. The government has been incompetent basically at every level in preparation, at every level. Uh, States and localities were worse, but look, Trump was not as fast on this as he could have been. It's a question of how soon he saw the data that really was the the tipping point. But we all look, it could have been sooner. And I think that would have been true of any president, given the same advisors and the same. But if we're just going to gauge the way the government has done here uh, and, and we've talked about state and local too, New York, California, uh, uh, Louisiana, Washington state, what's going on in these places. And you say, how could they have missed this so badly and how could they have messed up the response? But they have uh, they don't they don't operate on projections that have any accountability in them. They tell you to do this or else. They abuse power at the first opportunity. I mean, government as an entity has not covered covered itself in glory during this process at all. It's a last resort for us because we have no other resort under the circumstances. But let's not confuse that with, well, because government has to be useful in pandemic response, they really would do a great job running our healthcare system too. You'll notice there's been a drop-off in libs comparing what what this would be like if we had Medicare for all and what this would be like if we took the European approach to healthcare. Europe has has done worse. Europe's healthcare system has been in worse shape. I mean, when I say Europe, obviously the major countries we're talking about, Spain, Italy, the UK, we have had better outcomes than they have. We have a lower mortality rate than they do. And this is a massive stress test of the system. So that, if anything, tells us that we have been on the on the more right track than they have with this for a very long time. And those who want greater government control of your healthcare system just ignore results in favor of ideology. But this is not this is not showing me at all why, you know, and I'm part of the movement to say, OK, government, step back, let people do more stuff. You got to ease up here. Yes, give us you got to give money to people that need money right now. But that's because you've effectively shut down their ability to make money. The government made the decision for the small business owners here. You can't take the risk to yourself. You can't take the risk to your family of going and and continuing to operate your store or show up and work in the store. Not allowed to do that. 
So, of course, that's what I meant by the obligation that government has created. That you could consider to be an intervention in the marketplace from the government. So this is like a regulation they've imposed on us that prevents you from being able to support yourself at all. And then people say, oh, look, big government has to come in and save you. Yeah, because government effectively created the problem of the destroyed job in the first place. So this actually all lines up with what Hayek would tell you would happen under the circumstances. And it is not an excuse for a continuous expansion of government. And it does not break with any of the underlying conservative philosophy of how inept, slow, stupid and bureaucratic government is, no matter how serious the situation. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Kinds of things that that have to be done. Um, you know, there's a uh, during World War Two, uh, you know, where Roosevelt came up with a thing uh, that uh, you know was totally different than a than the, the it's called he called it the you know the World War Two. He had the war the, the War Production Board. <laughs> Sorry, man, Biden. Biden had another moment. Uh, World War Two and Nixon, Reagan. I know my my Biden and my gurgling gurgan are very similar, but uh, at what point is this just too much? It won't. The answer is never for Democrats. It doesn't matter. I've told you the else the El Cid strategy. Uh, here for the campaign is just put him forward. It doesn't matter what kind of physical condition he's in. It doesn't matter. Just 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 keep on going. Biden's their guy now. The, the, you, you will. I mean, the the what the what the libs are going to have to chew on and stomach and swallow and just uh, it will swallow then stomach. Uh, but what they're going to have to do to push Biden to victory, if that's really what's going to happen here, will be remarkable, will be utterly remarkable, because remember, Conservatives, even those conservatives who very early on were skeptical of Trump, and there were a lot of us, uh, conservatives were willing to say, yeah, I mean, sometimes he's a little crass or, you know, yeah, he seems a little thin skinned sometimes. But, you know, I like the policies and I like the fight. and I like the fire in the belly. And, you know, with, with Biden, what they're going to have to do is just there are so many glaring weaknesses and really no upside. It's just everything Biden does is amazing. Biden is Biden is fantastic. He's just great. Whew. It's going to be challenging for them to do this, but that is going to be what they do. Uh, they will have to debase their own intellect. Uh, they'll have to debase their, and whatever morality they think that they adhere to. I mean, they're Democrats, so I, I, I don't know. You know as well as I do if they think that there's such a thing as a universal principle. But they'll do things like this. I mean, here's, for example, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar, who I suppose is back to throwing staplers at members of her staff that displease her in the Senate. Here she is on the allegation against by member. There's a sexual assault allegation against Joe Biden that now is the New York Times has written on it. Everyone's had to say, oh, oh, no, not CNN, though. Oh, I'll get there. But here's what Klobuchar has to say about this. Play three. Uh, there were reports here in the New York Times and the Washington Post about an allegation of misconduct against Joe Biden. Uh, he has denied it. I wanted to get your response uh, to that before we go. 
he has said, and I agree with this, you got to get to the bottom of every case and all allegations. I think the New York Times, I haven't read all the stories. I read that one. Um, your viewers should read that. It was very thorough. They interviewed people. Um, and I have done a lot of work on this. I actually led the effort to change the rules in the U.S. Senate uh, so that it is easier to bring these cases forward and so that we have taxpayers not uh, paying uh, for bad conduct. I think this case has been investigated. I know the vice president as a major leader on domestic abuse. I worked with him on that. Um, and I think that, again, the viewers should read the article. It was very thorough. It has been investigated, huh? Really? Are they going to call for the FBI to look into this like they did with Kavanaugh? Remember that? Why don't you want an investigation? Why don't you want to find the truth? The FBI is going to investigate clearly preposterous allegations of a, a gang rape crew from a, a, an elite D.C. high school from 35 years ago. How, how's the FBI going to do that one? No one's ever heard of this thing before. No one's ever, you know, there's no evidence what there's no evidence of any kind except one crazy person spewing nonsense for obvious political reasons. But let's call in the FBI to investigate. Where's the where are the calls for the FBI to investigate this one? Now, oh, they do background checks. They do background checks. Hmm. Do they do they have to do a background check on on Biden now or no? Can't they go around and ask all the questions, my friends? This is this is the most clear evidence that I can point to that our press is disgusting and a disgrace and should not be trusted and has no principles and has no decency and has no honor. That the corporate press, the elite lib media, and they're not elite. They're only they're not elite in, in being smart or being good or being honest. They're just elite because they've inherited and they control with an iron fist these legacy media institutions that operate like the faculty lounges of elite universities where being ideologically intolerant and stamping out anybody who disagrees with you, the very first moment you see any independent thought is the way that they operate. That's how they do things at CNN. That's how they do things at these different newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post. Oh, where's the CNN? I, I want to give you the full, the full numbers here. Oh, yes, here it is. Uh, the... CNN versus the way they've covered Reed versus Blasey Ford, they have done, I think, the final count. And I, I want to find this for you so that I'm sure uh, CNN has done zero stories on Tara Reed. Zero. Not a single story on the Tara Reed allegations. And now, just so I give you the full number, the full scope of how disgusting, how flagrantly awful they are. More than 700 articles they did on Kavanaugh. Math, folks. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's Friday, so I wanted to make sure we keep the show spicy. And that means that we can do uh, we could do a whole bunch of things, but one of them that'll definitely get the job done would be bringing in my friend Michael Malice. He is the author of of the new right also dear reader the unauthorized biography of kim jong-il and he's got a show called you're welcome which you can subscribe to it's on youtube and other places mr michael malice good to see you sir what's going on block 
How? For the first time ever, my head's bigger than yours. I, I know. We, we do it that way. You know the same way that you have the chairs adjusted so your guest is like a little tiny person? I do this so that your giant cranium, I can't even look at it. It's so huge. It's huge. But uh, how are you? How, first of all, I mean, how are you doing? It's Friday. But by the time people listen to this, they're going to be heading off into their weekends. Uh, you're here like me in New York, right? So you're in like ground zero for lockdown central. Well, I don't like using that term <laughs> in this context. Fair but enough. Yeah, it's been really bad for a while here. Um, it's gotten psychologically for me better. But being a lifelong New Yorker, um, this really did a number on me for a, a minute there. And what, what are you seeing about this that is, let, let's start with uh, what have been the surprises for, other than this is worse than I think people, meaning the virus is worse than, I saw very few people that weren't saying this was bad before really what happened in Italy, that seemed, and then it was kind of like everybody realized that this was kind of, this was going to be really scary, but what, what have been some of the surprises or just some of your changes in perception about society, about the way people interact? I mean, what, what are you thinking about as we go through this process of trying to figure out how we move forward? Well, there was a, a, an element of conservatism that I would tend to agree with that I think has been somewhat disproven. We all tend to have this idea, uh, a lot of us, that civilization is basically like five minutes away from Lord of the Flies uh, and that you know people are very quick. You see all those dystopian movies when things break down, they just it's just you know, the next day there's uh, dumpsters on fire literally and, and home invasions and it's the purge. And I had a few tweets about that early on because I'm like, okay, this is where we're heading. And I'm surprised at the extreme amount of civil rest. We've seen no civil unrest. There's been a protest in Michigan against Governor Whitmer, but that was hardly um, some kind of rioting, you know. Um, and I am... And, you know, I'm an anarchist and a lot of, you know, my anarchist buddies are like, oh, how would anarchism handle this, whatever, so on and so forth. And the point I'd make is a lot of these things that are happening are being done purely voluntarily. I mean, people are grumbling a little about the, you know, level of, of whatever this or that. But I think people are more than happy for whatever reason or whatever you want to make of it to be like, all right, we, we're going to do what we have to and white knuckle through this. And I'm seeing an enormous sense of um, community, uh, especially through social media, because everyone's going through the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of sympathy for one another, a lot of kindness for one another. So, you know, the, now who knows how long this is going to last. But I think, you know, given that you're talking about worldwide and given that you're talking about 50 states and how many cities and, you know, different cultures within America, you would think they're going to react differently. I think that we've had this kind of uniformity of a response is uh, some in some way mollifying and like, okay, at least we don't have to worry about these horror stories of, you know, home invasions and, and things like this and robberies. Yeah. I, um, or like subway were, crime. Were, were you in the, uh, were you in the city when hurricane Sandy hit? Do you remember that? Were you around? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you a great story about hurricane Sandy. Go ahead. So the year prior to that, there was supposed to be a hurricane. I forgot what it was called. And they shut uh, they shut everything down, and then it was basically like a thunderstorm for ten minutes, right? So like nothing happened, and we were like, okay. I remember that. I was in North Korea. People were filling their bathtubs with water so that they would have potable water, and then nothing happened. Right. So I was in North Korea right before Sandy, and in North Korea, you know, working my book, dear reader, and, and so on. And in North Korea, they have a problem with electricity, and you know, there's a very famous picture of the two Koreas at night. 
or as North Koreans would say, the one Korea that's you know split in half thanks to the U.S. imperialists. But the northern part of the republic is pitch black, and South Korea is lit up like a Christmas tree or like Eric Erickson's front lawn. Um, and when you're in a capital city, which with high rises and it's dark, you know, I, where I was there, it's very odd, and it, it's especially for a New Yorker. And I came back like the day of Sandy. And I thought, okay, this is going to be exactly like last year. Who cares? I didn't prepare for anything. And then it hit. And then Manhattan, lower Manhattan, was in a blackout. And I'm like, I brought this back, this curse back with me from North Korea. We lost the electricity in New York. So I remember that. Um, but even that, the thing with Sandy was I could look out my window during the worst of Sandy and there were people. And not having the people here now really is jarring and I well, I've this used is what I wanted to, I of- wanted to try to, to bring up with you and I'm sorry it's a, I had a delay there for a second I didn't mean to jump on what you're saying um, but the connectivity issue right right now we have fa- really pretty amazing electronic connectivity all the time in all yeah. the places right and Sandy that was gone and I remember seeing people waves of people walking because I was right at the dividing line where I was staying between a blacked out area and a place that still had power. And you had people who, you know, some of them had to go through a totally pitch black building, you know, a large apartment building, go down 20 flights of stairs in the total dark, maybe some, you know, emergency exit sign or something and didn't have phones to call. You know, the phones all died over time. And there was this sense of, but then they saw the people and it was just like, okay, human beings, hug, shake hands, see, and that connection was reestablished and you could just sort of feel the stress being, and everyone knew eventually the power would get back on. This is obviously a, a, a much yeah. more serious situation than that, but it is just, now we have total, like here I am talking to you and we're gonna have hundreds of thousands of people that hear this show, watch this show, listen to this show across the country. But I mean, other than the French bulldog I have here and occasionally maybe breaking social distancing uh, for a few minutes with my girlfriend, like, there's not, or not a few minutes, you know, a couple times a week, sorry, with my girlfriend, uh, there's not really a sense of human connection. I think that's what we're missing. Uh, yeah, the thing with Sandy is New Yorkers, I think, and people sometimes like to complain. And it's fun to complain when you know the situation is very temporary and nothing's going to happen. So like with Sandy Exact, like, oh, I just have to walk down 20 flights of stairs. But then you realize, you know, you're in the middle of this like once in a century storm and this is the worst of your problems that you have has to do some cardio. Uh, you know, you, you, you can hardly take it too seriously. You're concerned about maybe elderly people getting food to them, but you know that they're on it. You know that electricity is minutes away. Everyone on the street, it was having parties. I remember, you know, it was just very communal, fun, like, you know, summer school almost kind of situation. This is very different because I, I what I'm kind of, uh, I don't know about disturbed about, is a lot of times you see people in the media or on social media talking about, oh, when we get back. And I'm like, I, I don't know what that middle step is looking like. And you're yada yadaing the, the best, the worst part, because we don't have a cure for the flu. We all see those movies where there's a pandemic and then someone, oh, it's this pill that was in chocolate. We just, it was there in front of us all along. We're cured. That's not going to happen. And at some point, someone is going to have to make the decision how much uh, uh, of a threat can we deal with for the sake of reopening our economy. Uh, most people are profoundly uncomfortable with making trade-offs. The idea that you have two bad options and no matter which one you choose, it's going to hurt. 
and they don't think in those terms. They always think good and bad. Worse, given the animus between President Trump and the corporate press, no matter when he opens up this country again, the next day when someone dies, which will be inevitable um, statistically, they'll be like, look, this person was, yep. it was fine, and then Trump reopened Correct. the country, and now little Timmy is on a ventilator. You could see, you know, the headlines are going to be written right now. He can't possibly win unless it's literally a 100% cure rate, which is also not possible because so much of this, as you know, and the viewers know, is a function of underlying conditions. So we have that uh, um, nightmare to look forward to. So I, I think this kind of looking ahead that a lot of people are making are like, guys, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I just mean in terms of the disease stuff. I mean in terms of all the corollaries with the disease stuff. Hold on, Mike. There was a doctor on, on, on Twitter. I'm sorry. We're, I know, sorry like, can you hold that thought for one second? Well, I, I just need to go to a quick oh, sure. break. We'll come back. Uh, we're going to come back with Michael Malice talking more about response to this and, and the media and, and everything else. Stay with us, team. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, back with uh, Michael Malice. Follow him on uh, Twitter and also his show, You're Welcome, is very amusing, very insightful. I've done it a few times and uh, I'm still still kicking. Um, Mr. Malice. So uh, I, I didn't mean to, to interrupt. We were in, in the flow. And we always we never have enough time. We're talking about anything. But I, I did want to ask if I could just direct you for a second to two areas of because, you, you know, I, I like discussing the corporate media with you because we both don't mind throwing some haymakers where they're deserved on that one. The press's response to Chinese responsibility for this pandemic and the way the press has responded to the allegations of sexual assault against Joe Biden that are out there, given the way they responded to, to Kavanaugh and, and other things in the past, it feels like they have no more credibility to protect. So at this point, maybe just this is the way they're going to act and they don't care how much it looks ridiculous to us. What do you think? Well, I think when you have a population like their readership, the true believers who have been trained since kindergarten that these people are the arbiters of truth, in many ways, the more ridiculous and more self-contradictory the story put forward, the better it is for your audience because they are then psychologically feeling strong for having these uh, um, this cognitive dissonance. Uh, this was a, very much a function of things like the Soviet Union and other countries where you have this maybe one party um, kind of media. At, at the same time, I've had this this discussion with several people like Molly Hemingway off the top of my head, uh, who's I know you're a big fan of and I'm yeah. a big fan of as well. And a lot of conservatives had this belief that for a long time that the uh, the media is basically an arm of the DNC, the Democratic Party. And I think what we're seeing, I threw up a poll on my Twitter, and I was delighted at the response. I said, which would you rather have if you had to pick a choice of these two? And again, people don't like bad choices, but there's two bad choices from their perspective. Nine random Democratic senators for the Supreme Court, nine random Democratic senators or nine random New York Times reporters. And obviously this is an unscientific poll, but three to one people chose the Democrats in the Senate because there's a realization that for conservatives, as bad as you might think, you know, party hacks like Dianne Feinstein or some other randos might be, they do not compare at all uh, to the, I call them jihadis without testosterone that work for the New York Times. Uh, for an example, there was that protest in Michigan, uh, Governor Whitmer has the strongest, I believe, lockdown procedures of any uh, state in the nation. Uh, for a long time federalism, you know, let's have every state be the laboratory and have different states experiment. I, I think this is, that's a good approach in general, especially something like this. People protesting, they're like, look, I can't buy seeds to plant 
uh, gardens or I can't visit my in-laws. This is crazy. And uh, a reporter who works for the New York Times for this, their 1690 project, 1619 project, which is trying to rewrite American history to start with it being defined as the introduction of slavery, uh, she had this tweet about how, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to believe this is a coincidence that this is happening when deaths are spiking in the black and brown communities. And I'm like, it's great that the mask is dropping because you would never see any Democratic senator make a claim that uh, demented and deranged. Um, so I think kind of exposing, and, and you look at Governor Newsom of California, who's hardly Republican, Governor Cuomo of New York, hardly Republican, lifelong partisan from a de hardcore Democratic family. They both are speaking highly of President Trump, or at least moderately, uh, Prime Minister Conte of Italy, you know, who's governing in coalition with the Social Democrats, went out of his way to praise President Trump. And then when you look at how the corporate press is talking, as if every death was his, not only his res responsibility. He ordered it. Almost he, it was like he's home. ordering executions. Yes, he's, 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 and he wants it. Yeah. It's it's stunning. I mean, so, I, I do think that the you know you raise the point about the corporate press and how they're the mask is dropped. Uh, people keep saying that you know th that okay the, the conservative media and there's now more opposition. I mean, I, I mean you know that's a part of it, but really it's just that now they freely share their thoughts. I mean that that report. You know, even even uh, Jake Tapper recently retweeted. He just couldn't help himself. I mean, he's one of the worst frauds because he still upholds that. You, you mentioned people being raised to think that like the Cronkites of the world and these people are so trustworthy and nonpartisan. It's a giant lie, and Tapper's in that mold. But he retweeted someone saying that President Trump is insane. And then he turns around and he goes, well, I just thought that was newsworthy. Well, no, they show us who they are and then they pretend they haven't, which I think is funny. Apparently, he also thinks it's newsworthy to have Richard Spencer, you know, one of the prominent leaders of the alt-right, be on his show. Because that's to, you know, let the people know. But then if someone's talking to President Trump, they should be run out of town on a rail. It's interesting you break up Jake, bring up Jake Tapper. Because The Daily Show, which have been for a long time, you know, uh, one of these head agitprop outlets designed to kind of train their, their population to think a certain way. They had a segment on like stupid responses to this virus. And I always say that the corporate press is factual but not truthful. So for example, you know, if I went to the store and uh, bought a ton of groceries and you said, Michael went to the store to buy oranges, that is factual, but it's not truthful. There are other things I bought and that's an innocent example. So in their clip reel, they only had Republicans who were downplaying this forthcoming threat as if to imply uh, that only Republican and the Democrats are on the level. The idea that you're going to be partisan during this, uh, I mean, we talk about how, like, you know, crime and, and diseases don't recognize color, but you really want to make this a Republican-Democrat thing. Jake Tapper had on de Blasio, mayor of New York, and, and uh, he asked him, don't you think you encouraging people early on to go on the subway and live your life had an issue with this? So the fact is that there were plenty of people on the left who didn't see this coming. I don't blame them at all. Um, and they will still put forth these clip reels to give the implication that, right, you know, but, wait, hold, but this is important. Do you, do you realize why Tapper does that? This is the, the Tapper move. And he's not the only one. So I'm not trying to make this about, but they'll ask, you know, one real question once in a while of one Democrat. And then that wipes away all the propaganda reels, the stuff that you're talking about. They point to that, say, see, I had de Blasio. Yep. Of course, everyone said de Blasio was being a moron about this. So that well, you're supposed to get a prize for that. But what I'm saying is it's amazing that The Daily Show can put forward this clip reel while simultaneously in cyberspace there are infinite examples of people from the other side of the aisle, including Dr. Fauci, 
uh, downplaying the concern. Oh yeah. And if that is the other point is, I always say the corporate press has a not a bias but an agenda. This is something that's agenda driven. If you just had a bias and said my team did handled it better than your team would, you can make that argument. But this is brazen lying by omission. Yep. Michael Malice, everybody. He's always interesting, always provocative. Glad you're staying safe and sound, my friend. Let's do some uh, YouTube chats or something soon. Put out some more content for folks. Uh, Check out his show, You're Welcome, uh, which you can find. But just follow him on Twitter and on Facebook. Michael Malice is a uh, he's one of the digerati these days. He's operating in the cyber world. All right, Michael. Good to talk to you, my man. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Team Buck, special treat for you all today. We are joined by author and former Navy SEAL Jack Carr. His newest book out now is Savage Son. He's also the author of The Terminal List and True Believer. Mr. Carr, how you doing, sir? Doing great. How are you there in New York City? I'm I'm in a little bit uh, of, of a rougher spot in terms of geographic location right now than, than you are, I think. You're out in Utah, right? So things here are a little rougher than out there, but I'm glad you're doing well. Yep. No, we're in Utah. I wanted to raise our kids in a ski town, so we came up here after I got out of the military, left Coronado, and uh, yeah, it's not not too bad up here. I have, uh, I have a feeling you yeah, probably no, have you have sufficient breathing room slash plenty of ammunition, storable food, potable water. I'm just going to guess all those things. So yeah, I've always been into being prepared from even before my SEAL team days. But uh, yeah, we were good with the ammo and the guns, of course, and then uh, food, water, filtration systems, ways to make fire, all those little things so that you can uh, focus bandwidth where it needs to go in times of crisis. So I felt good. Uh, Finally, my wife's like, oh, now I see why we've been preparing for these things all these years. And uh, so anyway, we feel good about that part of it anyway. So so I want to talk about your books a bit, Jack, but, but first I thought we would let everybody know uh, a bit more about who you are and, and how you got to this point where now you're you're writing thriller. Well, what? How, by the way, how would we classify a thriller action novel? I mean, it's not really espionage, right? So thriller uh, along the lines of, of go ahead. It's like a, so it's a political thriller, uh, same type of books that uh, Brad Thor, Vince Flynn, um, Nelson DeMille, Stephen Hunter, those kind of, uh, of novels. So political thriller is how it's classified. All right, but people are going to want to know that they, they hear former Navy SEAL and they want to know some of the some of the background there. How, how did you you know tell us where did where, you start out and how did you get into the teams? Yeah, so I wanted to do two things my entire life. One was serve my country in uniform specifically as a Navy SEAL and the other was to write fiction. And I wanted to go in the military at first because I grew up with the idea of uh, my grandfather as my hero. Uh, he was killed in World War II. He flew the Corsair, which is a plane that had the gull wings that would fold up on aircraft carriers. So I grew up with the silk maps they used to give aviators back then, his medals, black and white photos of him and his squadron. And Black Sheep Squadron was on TV at the time, starring Robert Conrad. So this is the late 70s, early 80s. And I just knew that that was the path I was going to take. I was going to serve my country in the uniform. It was a, in, it was a calling. Uh, then I found out very early on what SEALs were. And my dad, uh, well, I was watching football, put my dad would watch football on the weekends. And there was those four channels, as you may or may not remember, ABC, CBS, NBC. And then there was the one outlier channel that always seemed to have a World War II movie on playing opposite football on Sundays. So during commercials, I got to go up and watch what was on that opposite channel and watch that war movie. And in one of them, they had these guys coming up over the beach, putting explosives on obstacles in advance of a conventional force landing. And I asked my dad who these guys were. And he said, Frogmen, because that was the name of the movie. And uh, I said, well, what are the Frogmen? These look look awesome. And he said, go ask your mother. 
And my mom was a librarian, so we grew up surrounded by books, this love of reading, and went to do some research at the local library, found out what SEALs were. And so from that age, from seven on, I knew that I would one day make it into the SEAL teams, or at least I try out. I test myself in that crucible that was Bud's. When was did you start training. doing your, your own version of like the Rocky training montage when he's in Russia in the snow? You know, was was 14 year old, right was 16 year old Jack Carr doing doing push ups in like in like freezing water somewhere? I mean, how, how, how did you get ready for this? This is true. So, uh, of course, I was a big fan of the Rocky movies, and so was my so was my dad. So early on, uh, we were we were uh, watching those movies, and I was sprinting up the hills by our house, and I was trying to do pull ups, like early version of CrossFit. Uh, Wait, you know, so you, 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 act, you actually were inspired by the Rocky movies a little bit? I love it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we had the little the bar that we'd put up that would always seem to you know fall down when you're on your like tenth or eleventh pull up uh, as a little kid in the hallway. Uh, so yeah, I was inspired by those movies because you know we all love we love those movies because it's the underdog it's the guy that gets knocked down and gets up and keeps moving forward so it's uh we are all drawn to those which is why they're so popular so even before rocky was training in siberia uh and, you know to fight ivan drago the height of the cold war i was uh i was inspired by those films running up and down the hills and doing those things to prepare for what I, where i was going because i always knew that i was going to the seal teams um and the two things that i found out during that during that research at the library was that hey these guys are some of the most elite special operations forces in the world and the training is some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military so i was in and i was focused on it really for my entire life now is there anything that you once you got in and I mean, people are more familiar now with uh with buds than they would have been years ago because of all the there's a i think a discovery channel series so you know we've seen your your brothers in in uniform freezing their butts off in the surf and all, you know, we, we, people have some familiarity with those, with those basics. And also there've been a, a couple of movies that have gone into, and I don't know how sensationalized the training was or how accurate it was. I mean, I can tell you that the CIA training in movies is always basically crap, but I think the buds training looks like it's more accurate, more, more true to life. So you, you get in and what's your, you know, around what year do you start and when do you have your first combat deployment? Yep. So I came in in 96, got to Buds in January 97 and uh, went through Buds. I got to my first SEAL team in October 97. So it's uh, obviously 9-11 has not happened. And we think we're all showing up at these SEAL teams and we're going to get the pagers and they're going to give us all this awesome gear. And we're going to you know, be at somebody's wedding or maybe at the bar and the pager will go off and then we'll zip Charlie, off. And Charlie Sheen style. You, you were going to you were exactly. going to jump off we a Jeep died. off the bridge. <laughs> I remember. Actually, yeah, a friend of mine actually did that. Yeah. Uh, Adam Brown did that. Sadly, he was uh, he was killed. But yeah. Uh, but he's not doing that, but an amazing guy, but called oh, fearless okay. documents his life. Um, but, uh, an amazing, amazing guy. But yeah, we all thought that's what we were going to do. Uh, and then we got to the first seal teams and they handed us brooms, mops, say, go paint that wall, go clean that bathroom, do new guy stuff. So in those days, our job was to be prepared for war. So we joined our platoons. We went through these 18 month workup cycles where you're doing land warfare, desert warfare, mountain warfare, jumping out of planes, diving, doing your close quarter battle stuff, urban warfare, and you're training with the guys you're going to go downrange with. So that when you go downrange, if the call comes, you're the first guys to go in in that area of the world. So the job was to prepare for war. Uh, of course, September 11th happened. Uh, that was on my second deployment. So I had one pre-September 11th deployment. Then second one is when September 11th happens. And we're in Guam. The phones start ringing up and down the hallways. People start knocking on doors, waking people up. And then we go down to the basement where we had one TV and we watched the Twin Towers fall on television. And then it's been uh, back and forth to the Middle East ever since. And in 
interesting thing is that we all, everybody that wasn't deployed at the time thought they were going to miss it. Uh, guys that were stateside are like, oh man, I can't believe I'm not deployed. I'm going to miss it. It's going to be over by the time I get over there. And here we are almost 20 years later, still engaged in uh, you know both those regions of the world. So uh, nobody was in uh, danger of missing it in hindsight. We are speaking to Jack Carr. He's a former Navy SEAL and author of Terminal List, True Believer. His latest is Savage Son. Uh, and I've actually started reading it, so I'll have to come bring him back at some point when I have my full my full review on it. I try to read the books of people that come on the show beforehand, but given the world falling apart right now, it's been a pretty busy time, Jack. But tell me a bit about uh, we're talking about your your deployments. Um, I, you know, I, I had the experience of being a, a CIA analyst, so one of those little civilian guys dressed like I'm on a camping trip. Uh, walking around trying to help you and your guys actually go go do war fighting. Uh, I was like pointing, you know, the bad guys are over there. Get them. Um, where where was nice. you? Were you Iraq or Afghanistan? I'm assuming you got sent to Afghanistan first, but where where'd you go? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, spent time in Afghanistan and Iraq. Most of my time was in Iraq. But uh, interestingly enough, the second novel, True Believer, is really based off something that happened to me in Iraq in 2006 when I was working for your former organization. Uh, and it was one of the highlights of my time in uniform, being the only military person attached to this covert action program that they had going on over there at the time with primarily indigenous forces. And uh, we had one guy that was uh, an Iraqi who was just head and shoulders above his peers when it came to battlefield leadership, uh, when it came to the close target reconnaissance, when it came to planning, when it came to having to flex out there when the bullets started flying, because typically uh, what like at least my experience was that a lot of times they were hesitant to make decisions because coming from a place where you're a subject, not a citizen, uh, if you took initiative on the battlefield and, it met, and you messed up, uh, it was kind of like off with your head type thing. They didn't encourage you to learn from your mistakes in a lot of the parts of the world where we went. Uh, so with this guy, he took, he took risks on the battlefield. He adapted quickly on the battlefield. Uh, and then years down the line, I got word that he disappeared. And I thought, oh, what if I fictionalize this and turn this into a, a novel here? So that was the basis for, for True Believer. So you might like that, and you might remember some of those days back there in Iraq in 2006, uh, running and gunning right around the time of the uh, the Golden Mosque bombing. Yeah. So, uh, so I, yeah. <laughs> I saw it at the beginning of, of, um, of Savage Sun, you had what I've seen in, in many of my, my former peers and friends, both either on the in, Intel agency side or, or on the military side or a combination thereof the uh this was reviewed and just fyi these reviews are ridiculous uh so i was like yep he went through the review process because pretty sure if you talk about james bond's exploding cufflinks they'll find something in there to they'll find something in there to black out i've i've been through that process myself ridiculous i mean it's fiction um, they get very liberal with those black Sharpie pens, government supply or uh, taxpayer supplied, of course. Um, and on the second one, True Believer, I appealed. So they took out 54 sections of the novel, which are blacked out in the hardback. Uh, then I appealed during the time between the hardback came out and the paperback came out. And I won 37 of them on appeal. I should have won all of them because my lawyers attached every single redaction to a publicly available government document. So not just on Wikipedia or somebody else's book, but you can actually just get it from the government. And they tied them all to those, but still won 37 of the 54. So when the paperback came out, I unredacted what uh, was in uh, what we won on appeal. And one of those was a country, they took out every single reference to Morocco. And in my story, the hero goes from Mozambique and he has to go somewhere to do some training. And he, so he goes, I made up a CIA black site in Morocco, just made it up. Uh, I've never been to Morocco in, in uniform. I went before 
I joined the military and I loved it. I could describe the, the marketplace. I could describe the mountains and I just loved the country. Uh, so I put it in there and they blacked out everything that said Morocco, anything that said Atlas Mountains. They took out Moorish architecture um, and a made up air base that does not even exist. They blacked out. But I ended up winning those on appeal. And so those were unredacted I mean, in the paperback you version. Can, if you second. give away the secrets of 15th century North African architecture, my friend, I don't, I don't even know how you could show Serious your face business. in any military bars anymore. It's crazy. And the stuff Serious that they, business. I, I've seen the stuff that they've, you know, uh, my, my favorite is when they start blacking out, you know, they'll black out like the weapon that somebody was carrying. That's that's the equivalent of like he had a blank. And then and then it'll say uh, later on he fired his AK-47. It's like, I don't think he was carrying two rifles, but I'm glad you guys got that the first time. Uh, but anyway, so I, this, <laughs> this is some insider stuff. I don't I don't want to get too deep into it because I know I, I want to ask him. And you, you mentioned an incident when you were in Iraq and, and something that was the the impetus for, for further thought processes. I mean, you, you were in the midst of of a particularly nasty ambush. What was it in Baghdad? Yep. Yep. Uh, in the uh, neighborhood, was it anyway? Yeah. In Baghdad. And uh, we we're in the ambush because a couple weeks earlier, even though this was technically a sovereign um, Iraqi unit, because it was a sovereign country, obviously, at the time, um, because we had Americans attached, particularly me, because I was uh, the only person really in the military. The other people were from your organization. Uh, we went into a mosque, not me, but the sovereign Iraqi unit went in there um, because a bad guy was in there like they tend to do because they know that we're hesitant to uh, to hit them if they're in places of worship or hospitals or things like that. Um, so they went in there and grabbed this guy a couple weeks earlier and it caused a firestorm, of course. Um, and so we tracked another guy to a similar location uh, at night through some technical means. And uh, so we parked outside. We just stopped block away and we had to wait and we had to go then I'm on the radio and I'm trying to get the approvals from the military side of the house and and then have the the agency side talk to the military side and go so 45 minutes we're out there maybe even an hour we're just sitting there meanwhile they're maneuvering on us they're getting uh, elevated positions on us and then they all open up at one time uh, of course but also what we've done is send our snipers up to some elevated positions at the same time. So it turned into this pretty crazy ambush that did not have to happen. We could have just rolled up, gone right in, grabbed this guy, been out of there. But uh, because we had to wait and sit there and wait for senior level leadership to then approve it, which they, uh, well, they didn't get a chance to because the ambush happened 45 minutes in. Uh, yeah, we, so we took a couple casualties, but nobody died. Got uh, one of one of your guys took a, a round, I'll call it in the hip, although <laughs> uh, they, it, took it, in the, it took a round in the best place you can probably take a round, right in the butt. Um, and then one of our indigenous forces got wounded as well, but everybody survived and they weren't uh, weren't serious injuries. But uh, but our snipers being elevated and then uh, me being able to jump out and go coordinate with a QRF, a quick reaction force, uh, a few blocks away that while we were waiting, I had them move closer just in case uh, to be so we could fall back and they could be laying down some fire with Bradleys and everything else that they had. Um, so it, it was an interesting night, very interesting night. But uh, you, know, you feel very exposed out there while you're waiting for these senior level leaders to make their decisions from uh from their comfortable tactical operation centers yeah i mean i remember when i was in baghdad and the cappuccino machine broke down and uh it was a really people did not move fast enough for my liking my friends so we had very different <laughs> we had very different experiences of the war zone jack carr everybody check out the book savage son also once you've read that one terminalist true believer and uh jack thank you for your service thank you for your time and uh the freedom hut welcomes you back whenever you want anything you need from us you can count on it all right oh, thank you so much and uh, take care and be safe out there in new york 
And real quick, team, the interview with Jack Carr goes a whole 45 minutes. You're going to want to hear it, so make sure that you download our podcast this weekend. It'll be an extra. All you have to do is subscribe to the Buck Sexton Show wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll drop it into that feed. Also, subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash Sexton. We're putting the interview up there. Had a great time talking to Jack. You want to hear about him, his book, Being in the Seals. So check it out. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. To everyone, you should come to Chinatown. Precautions have been taken by our city. Uh, we know that there's a concern about tourism traveling all throughout the world. Uh, but we think it's very safe to be in Chinatown and hope that others will come. That was before. Now we know what Pelosi's saying today. But just remember, I mean, Mike Malice and I, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about this. And, and it's the, the truth is that you can find these clips about anybody who was talking about this at the time. Um, I, you know, and you're operating at some level. And I, I was really in the early days of the pandemic when it became clear what we were dealing with. So I'd say that was maybe three weeks ago. Um, I was beating myself up to, to close friends and family just saying, I can't believe I missed this. I can't believe I missed this. And, and then I started to think more about it and realized based on the data that we had, what we're being told, I mean, I, I can't see virology samples. I'm not I'm not able to go and count all the people in, in China who have who have died from this and what's really going on. You can only rely, you know, it's a garbage in, garbage out situation with bad data. If the data you're getting is inaccurate, if, if it's just not true, there's very little that you can do to overcome that to give you good analysis. So I think that was a huge part of it, which is why the role of China in all of this is not something that we should ever allow to just get, you know, fade away into, you know, down the memory hole. And this is important. Secretary Pompeo has also been willing to express his frustration about the World Health Organization. Here's what he said. Play 17. It is completely appropriate that the world ask the right questions. And this is the president's frustration with the World Health Organization. That is the institution with the task, underwritten in part by the American people and countries all around the world. It is their task to protect the world from precisely what is happening today. And that means they need to get answers and data sets, and they need to demand that from the Chinese Communist Party. And the Chinese Communist Party needs to come clean about what took place there so the whole world can see what took place. When we do that, there'll be a time for accountability. We'll be able to attribute what happened, who did what, and, uh, and we, we can move on from what is now uh, an, an incident that has destroyed so much wealth, not only here in the United States, but all across the world. There's a difference, my friends, between getting it wrong and making sure that others get it wrong. And that's that that's the issue that we see with China. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, everybody has been locked downing for the weekend. Some of you've been working. Thank you for doing that by the way, but the rest of us have been in lockdown mode. I've I've decided to limit myself to ice cream on weekends. Uh, that's a good, uh, I'm getting it going, and I'm now going to be on day three of my 100 push-ups, 100 squats challenge. Uh, Producer Mark, I do have to ask you to weigh in on an important question, though. Some people are saying that even if you're doing uh, work from home, WFH, the cool acronym the kids are using these days, that you should dress up like you're going into an office. I think this is poppycock. 
I 100% agree with you. That's ridiculous. I, I can't imagine like what I'm going to I'm going to wear business casual to sit alone at my desk or or so that the dog feels like she has a fancier, you know, personal butler and handler because I am the dog's butler, I've realized. You know, she rejects food if she doesn't like it and it's good. I always feed her good stuff. I had to make her she uh, refused to eat chicken, fresh roast chicken. Uh, so I had to make her seared scallops the other day, and that she would eat. That's the that's the kind of French bulldog I'm dealing with here. Wow. Yeah. I don't even eat fresh sea scallops. Yeah. But I would. Saying. I just don't buy them. Yeah. She 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 loved it. I gotta say that anything with butter sauce on it. I mean, it's true for humans too, right? Anything with butter sauce on it usually gets the job done. But uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not a dress up. In fact, if anything, I think people are going to realize that uh, telecommuting is a lot better than we had anticipated for for people who can do it. But I'm saying it's a lot. You can get a lot more done in a lot of office jobs at home than, than folks have realized. Um, and also dressing to be comfortable is not a bad thing. Dressing to be comfortable is a good thing. And maybe we're going to evolve out of I'm just going to say it and people get mad at me. Suits should be for formal ish occasions. You know, suits should be for suits are for weddings. Suits are for, you know, big parties, you know, maybe a big fancy birthday for throwing that one for grandma or grandpa or something. But a suit to go sit at a desk. Nah, nah, sorry. The Buckster is putting a thumbs down on that one. And producer Mark actually seems to agree. Yeah. When I even when I work in studio, I mean, how often am I dressed up? Never. I mean, I have seen so. you dressed up one time, and it was for your wedding, yeah. and I think that that was appropriate. Yeah, well, I mean, naturally, <laughs> if I'm the groom, I'm going to get dressed up. Yes. So one yeah, time but, in my life, it made sense. But the, the men's business suit as a part of day-to-day wear for the office, I, I'm, I don't know, maybe people are going to get mad at me for this. They're going to say it's slovenly to wear, you know, uh, if, I mean, what are we really talking about, too? In business casual now, they make all these fabrics that look like they're that they're, you know, dress shirt and look like they're slacks, but they're really, they have some kind of elastic in them. And uh, they're so much better. It's getting athleisure, in essence, is becoming the standard. And I think it's a good thing. You look at all these futuristic movies and, you know, people are wearing stuff that looks more like they're doing yoga than wearing like a a worsted wool suit from England in the the 1880s or something. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, I agree. Practicality and comfort over how you look. Practicality and comfort matters. All right. Um, I also think it's good for your health, too. I think that people that wear, for example, painful shoes stresses you out, man. Stress out your whole body. Bad for your back. Bad for everything. I got ideas and I like to share them. Okay, here we go. Uh, Mark, not to be confused with producer Mark. Buck, since beards are not recommended due to the coronavirus, perfect time to experiment with a buck stash. Um, I'm trying to think what I would look like with just a, just a mustache, and I do not think I would pull it off very well at all. I cannot say. Mark, have you ever gone? Did you ever do like what is it, Brovember or something? When everyone grows a stash for prostate cancer, it's, it's a Movember where you don't shave at all. Movember. Yeah. Oh, that's a not shave. See, I thought that was just a mustache thing. It's a not shave at all. It's thing. not shave at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I got to I don't know. I got to tell you, I feel like I'm just going to say it, you know, and I've had a beard now for a year. And overall, I'd say the 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 fem- the my peer female response to the beard has been uh, has been 
predominantly very positive. Well, you so, also look like the first ever 12-year-old radio host whenever you shave. So Right. So I just feel like we've, we've run this experiment, and uh, the... Very, the, the current very lovely girlfriend likes the beard. But just in general, I'd say females out of the world have been pro-buck beard. And I think that a lot of guys find that the beard, not everyone likes it, but if you're talking about the numbers, if you're balancing it out, a lot of guys find the beard gets it done. You know, it's like we talked to, uh, you know, we, we, we talked to my, my man. Um, well, first of all, we, 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 a lot, we have a lot of people that come on the show that are that are bearded but when we we were discussing with our navy seal friend just now for those of you that watch on the pluto stream you see him and that guy's got a beard and a half that guy's got a real man beard just saying jack carr great beard all right uh jim greetings from fort collins colorado on 93.7 freedom radio god i love team buck denver bringing the ruckus always love you guys thank you Love the show. Listen every afternoon. Big hello to producer Mark and Tallulah. Colorado is a great, beautiful, fun place, except for our lib governor and legislature. You and your uh, lady skier should visit. I think so. As soon as the world stops ending and there's a greater possibility of travel, I'd love to, I'd love to get out to. I'm just kidding. The world's obviously not ending. I'd love to get out to Colorado. I've really never been. So Denver and the whole area, it sounds like fun to me. And Freedom 93.7. Yeah. I love my Denver peeps. It's great. Arnold writes in, Buck, love the show. Do you think Saul Alinsky would relish how close this country is to the brink of disaster and capable of true radical change? As a libertarian, I'm trying not to think the worst and feel that those that favor socialism are behind the curtain of lockdown. Um... Arnold, uh, yeah, I mean, crisis is clearly an opportunity and progressives throughout history, uh, radicals throughout history have uh, leveraged crisis in order to achieve their ends, because in more stable times, people are like, no, I don't want to take the huge risk of the, the, the leap into the unknown of greater statism or socialism or whatever it may be. You know, revolution is scary. Look, revolution was scary even for the people pushing for it in this country. I mean, it was either... The idea was going to work out and we're going to have this great experiment in in democracy and and the Constitution and all those other awesome things. Freedom, America. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Or they were going to get hanged as traitors to Great Britain. Right. So that was risky stuff, risky stuff. And if Great Britain had acted differently to uh, toward the colonists, remember, they were taking too much of their stuff. I believe the line from uh, the declaration is eat out their substance. You know, take people's stuff and give them no redress. They get angry. It's a lesson, a lesson not just from our own revolution, a lesson from history. Candace Buck, I'm a registered nurse, dietitian, and just became a nurse practitioner in January. Uh, no, not kidding. I currently work in an ICU and take care of COVID patients. As such, I have a great deal to say about glove use during this time. Gloves provide a barrier for a specific task and are discarded to prevent contaminating other surfaces. Unless someone has an open lesion on the hands, there is no value in wearing gloves everywhere. Go about your business with frequent hand washing and hand sanitizing. Do not touch your face, eyes, etc. until washing your hands. When you arrive home, sanitize phone, glasses, keys, etc. and wash your hands. If you want to take the extra step, wash your face because one is likely to touch his or her face at some point. Shields high for New York. Candace. 
Well, Candace, that that's definitely that adds up a whole lot more than what we've been told previously about this. So that makes sense to me. You know, that, that wearing a glove everywhere, you're just still moving around the same stuff that you'd be moving around with your bare hands. And eventually you got to take the gloves off. So it's not like if you have a glove, you're protected. Uh, it's only if you're doing certain kinds of activities and then you take the gloves off that you'd have greater protection. But you still got to wash your hands and be careful. So that all makes sense. What do you think, producer Mark? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Yesterday I didn't I went grocery shopping, mask, no gloves. I just sanitized my hands right after I left the store. Yeah, I mean, and the mask is really, it sounds like it's now, I shouldn't say consensus. Science is not about consensus, my friend. Science is about the ability to replicate results from experiments using data. Uh, but it seems like there's something of a consensus, and I'm just going to say it, that the mask is most useful for preventing an individual from spreading the virus to somebody else instead of preventing you from getting it from somebody who, say, did not have a mask on. That might help a little bit, but mostly it's if you're a shedder of virus and you have a mask on, you'll be in better, a better position. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm being told by the people who know the You're thing. in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. More roll call with Jared Spelled with two R's. Buck, I was thinking about your question about how Americans just give up their freedom without much resistance. I think what you have as a reaction from patriots is an ability to say, I see a need and now I will be a good citizen. Um, uh, I see a need to follow the guidelines for a shorter period of time. Now I think you see across the country people waking up saying this is enough. As more information comes out, people are waking up. As a Michigan resident... I think you saw the, yesterday the first steps of resistance. Then you see the governor react with condemnation and ignorance. Buck, shields high. There's a storm brewing. Yeah, Jared, of course, right? If, if people, you know, here, here's an example. You know, we, we do need to look at this as, with, with as, as clear a mind as we can. If the governor says you have to get the heck out of your house, let's say, you know, the, the, the governor of, uh, well, you don't tell me where you are here, Jared, but, you know, let's say the governor of Michigan, Oh, no, I think you did say that. Anyway, if the governor of Michigan, yeah, yeah, as a Michigan resident, he did say that. So if the governor of Michigan says you got to get out of your house in this area because, um, you know, there's a I don't know, this wouldn't happen in Michigan, I think. But, you know, there's like a level four hurricane coming and we're not going to be able to guarantee your safety or get you out of there. So we're giving an order to everybody to get out. Um that's one thing because you say, okay, a storm is coming. It's, I, mean, I got to go for a day. Now, some people would still say, Buck, they don't have the authority to tell you to leave your home under any circumstances, but you can understand how somebody who does believe in individual liberty and freedom and patriotism and the Constitution would say, I can leave my house for the next 48 hours while a storm passes because I, you know, I, I can make that decision and that's not tyranny. Uh, you know, same thing if they tell you, hey, everybody, evacuate this area of... Evacuate this area of... Um, you know, Oklahoma, because there's a or, you know, evacuate this area of Kansas. There's a there's a tornado coming. That's not tyranny. You're assuming the tornado will be there for you know, a few hours or a day or two. And then you're going to go back to your home and hopefully it's still there and everyone's OK. When they tell us 15 days to I keep was it 15 or I think it was 15 days, but we keep saying two weeks, whatever. Uh, but two weeks to stop the spread. I was willing to say, OK, we, we can we can as a country, we could lock down for two weeks. We can do that. It's a big price, but we can do that. 
But then we said two weeks, and then they said uh, 30 days in addition to that. And now we're saying, uh, at least here in New York, going to be another couple of weeks, probably another 30 days. This is sort of like the government telling you there's a tornado coming, you know, leave your house. Tornado still hasn't hit, but it could any minute, so you got to leave your house for a month. That's a very different thing. So as they expand the timeline, as they expand the declaration, the infringement upon your right becomes more obvious, becomes more severe. And that's where I think we are now as a country. People are recognizing that those dictates from the government aren't aren't just short term, aren't just one offs out of nowhere or one offs with a with a very clear end uh, defined end date. This is just what they're telling us. This is how they're telling us to live our lives for the foreseeable. And that's where the pushback is really happening. Hey, Buck. My local station is KQNT Spokane 590. I am from Sandpoint, Idaho, just over the Washington border. I listen every day while I'm working. You're my favorite voice in radio. Stay safe in New York and Shields High. Well, big, uh, big high five, although I guess not actually touching hands, but virtual high five to everybody out in KQNT Spokane. And thank you so much all for listening. We've got a very uh, thriving Team Buck community out there in Washington and uh uh, is, I don't know if it's Carlton or Charlton. I'm going to guess it's Carlton with an H. But Carlton, thank you so much for writing in your kind words, and I appreciate you listening into the show. Diane, hey, Buck, I think most people have forgotten the reason for the shutdown to flatten the curve so the hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed. We've done that. So it's time to get back to work with reasonable precautions. People are going to catch the virus. People are even going to die from it. We were never going to avoid that. All we did was prolong the pain, not reduce it. Keep up the great work. Shields high. You know, Diane, this is what I want an answer from the folks that are saying that they've got they to know the way forward and it's locked down and locked down as long as we need to and keep the lockdowns going. And are we just are, are we are we accepting that the virus is going to spread to the same number of people as if we did not have the lockdown? Is that I never seem to be able to get a real answer about that. Are we assuming that the are are the measures we're taking, assuming that 50 percent of Americans are going to get exposed to this virus or, you know, have been or will be exposed to this virus, regardless of the lockdowns? Because we should know that, shouldn't we? It feels a little bit like they keep telling us, oh, no, just just keep on doing the shutdown and then we'll beat the virus. Are we going to unless we get some kind of a medical breakthrough here and. I got to tell you, this virus is looking like it's there's a lot they don't know. There's a lot they don't understand about it. So uh, I, I think that it's very important that we have real honesty from the people making the decisions and that we, the we, the American people, have a forthright conversation about the kinds of trade offs and the kinds of decisions that we want to see. Greta. Hey, Buck and Mark. I'm writing from Wisconsin, where a Democratic governor just extended our safer-at-home order until May 26th. Ouch. Our current order is not even over until April 24th. Data from the Wisconsin Hospital Association shows that the peak for new cases was at the start of April, and evidently Governor Evers is willing to see what the next two weeks will bring before extending this government overreach. With all the political games lately in Wisconsin, I can't help but think this is happening merely because President Trump was discussing some states opening in the near future. Thank you for keeping me informed and entertained through this pandemic. Stay safe and shields high. Yeah, Greta, I wish I could say that politics were not a big part of this. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of political influence in all these decisions, decisions about the economy, decisions about the virus. This is our future. This is life and death. This is big stuff. But people still want to play the usual 
especially from the anti-Trump side, the usual crazy political games. Cammy, Hey, Buck. On Wednesday, you said you would love a puggle. Three years ago, I lost my girl. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Puggle and two weeks later, I rescued my boy Puggle. Okay, well, that's good. I have two Puggle mini pin mix and a Pug Lassa mix. Puggles are the best. I love your show. Well, Cammy, maybe we can end on that one for the weekend. Puggles, they're adorable. If you see one somewhere, go save it if it's in a shelter. Everybody, have a good weekend. Take care of yourselves. I'm going to be working on some Malta history podcast recording over the weekend. Talk to you Monday. Shields high.